1: The historical forces are tending to the good, but these historical forces actually, even they are trivial compared to these evolutionary forces which are huge and which shape us and equip us with all of these tools that in my view tend to the good. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast
2: that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. I have been thinking a lot about the really pernicious role that Twitter plays in our politics. Now, there's all kinds of problems with Twitter. There's the problems of conspiracy theories spreading across a portion of the population. There's a problem of very small communities of people getting sufficiently radicalized to inflict tremendous violence through terrorism. But the biggest problem, I think, is about the way in which Twitter seduces a lot of the most influential people in the country to fundamentally misunderstand public opinion. People at corporations take The views of the most devoted customers or the greatest haters to be representative of the products they manufacture and sell. Publishing houses and newspaper and magazine editors try to please the followers on Twitter whose views are very different from those of a great majority of their readers. And perhaps most consequentially, political candidates, their advisors, political journalists think that the views they see on the timeline actually stand in for the views of the broader electoral coalition. But all of those things, it turns out, are wrong. Business studies show that the views of average customers diverge systematically from the views of customers who post about a product on social media. And the people who post about politics on Twitter are completely unrepresentative of the wider population. Only about one in 20 Americans regularly post about politics on Twitter. Over 50% of all of the tweets about Barack Obama and Mitt Romney in 2012 were generated by less than 1% of Twitter users. And most importantly, as the New York Times showed a couple of weeks ago, among the Democratic coalition, People who are white, affluent, and have college or postgraduate degrees are hugely overrepresented. And so are the people who Tim Dixon, if you go back to the episode with him, might call progressive activists. Now, I actually think that all of this has an optimistic implication. In order to fix the problem of radicalized communities that may commit terrorist acts, We really have to put pressure on Twitter to change its algorithm. But in order to fix the problem of influential people being overly influenced by Twitter, they just have to learn about this fact. They have to learn to disregard Twitter in the same way in which newspaper editors don't take letters to the editor to be representative of the wider population. And this means that each of us can make a little contribution. If we want to have a better sense of reality, we should simply start to ignore Twitter as much as we can. I personally have not stopped tweeting. I will continue to tweet out this podcast, to tweet out articles I write, sometimes to tweet observations about the world. But I have deleted the Twitter app from my phone. I've stopped Twitter from sending notifications to my email, and frankly, Dear listener, it is astounding how much happier I've been ever since I've done that. Speaking of good news and happiness, I had a really interesting conversation for this episode of The Good Fight with Nicholas Christakis. He is the Sterling Professor of Social Natural Science at Yale. And he is also the author of a very interesting new book called Blueprint, which makes the argument for why evolution has actually wired human beings for the good. We've had a really broad conversation about the right role of evolutionary arguments in social science, about the way in which our biological instinct towards groupishness can become terrifying in some contexts but may actually drive a lot of progress in other contexts. It was a great a combative conversation. I am sure you will enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast Nicholas. Thank you for having me. So I don't do book interviews on this podcast. So this is not a book interview, but you did just publish a yes. really interesting book. And it's fascinating to me because, you know, in the social sciences, And in the wider discourse, we tend to have two kinds of arguments about evolution. Either you have people who argue from evolution and who tend to make pessimistic arguments, who tend to make in some ways more right-leaning arguments. And then you have people who say evolution is all bunk. We shouldn't be thinking about evolution at all. That's not how to understand contemporary societies. And they often are more optimistic about human nature. So your book fills a very odd void in that ecosystem which is that it's an argument from evolution but it's a positive argument so why do you think that looking at evolution should make us more optimistic rather than less optimistic about the world
1: well okay so the book of course the title is blueprint the evolutionary origins of a good society so you're absolutely right like i telegraph right from the beginning and i think that the sciences the social sciences and the and the biological sciences have tended to overemphasize the dark parts of human nature, our propensity to tribalism and hatred and selfishness and violence. But equally, it's the case that we are prone to love and friendship and cooperation and teaching. And I believe that these positive forces must necessarily, over the course of our evolution, have countermanded the negative forces. If whenever I came near you, you killed me or filled me with lies or were otherwise mean to me or brutal to me, I wouldn't approach you. We would live solitary lives, but we do not. So whatever the costs are of social interactions, the risks that we place ourselves in, and the fact that there is no doubt that there are vile parts of our human nature, I think equally there are good parts. Moreover, I think those good parts necessarily outweigh the bad. That is to say that the benefits of a connected life must outweigh the costs. So to what extent does that question sort
2: of just collapse into a question about looking at history on balance. Do we think it's positive
1: or negative or something like that? first of all, the other thing I want to say is that the parts of our nature that I'm interested in precede human history. So these are things that have shaped us to be a social animal over hundreds of thousands of years. So all the the pogroms... You're saying the the
2: way we know that evolution has wired us to be positive in some ways, when we look around the world and there's
1: good things, isn't it? I mean, is that... Yes, also true. So one way to try to reach at what is sort of foundational among us is to try to smooth out an average across the world. So if you look at populations across the world, we are taken with the great variety that we see. People dress in different clothes, they play different sports, they look different, perhaps superficially. But if you scratch that surface, I would argue if you get below what I would describe as a cultural or even historical veneer, you get to what I would regard to be universal about human societies that's present everywhere. People everywhere love their mates. People everywhere have friends. There are few totalitarian regimes which have succeeded in suppressing friendship but there's a very powerful cultural force has to be applied to stop that. So people everywhere exhibit these behaviors. They cooperate with each other. They have in-group bias. They have mild hierarchy. All these things that I call the social suite are present everywhere. So I see these as cultural universals. I see them as lying below the surface of these other historical forces. And I think these historical forces can only do so much to redirect us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: What is universal and what is particular? And obviously, if you end up thinking that everything is particular, then there's not much space left for evolution as an explanatory force. So if you think that there's a lot that's universal, then it's plausible that evolution helps yes. to explain a lot of it, right? Then the other question is about, well, what's sort of positive or negative? I mean yes. how much of all of this is just about different ways of seeing, uh, there's different words for it. You've alluded from tribalism, groupishness, and so on, right? Because groupishness is some of those positive things. When yes. you love your friends, yes. that is uh, one of well, the Well, friends ways. are different
1: than groups. So the way I think about it is the challenge of collective action, the challenge that if you had a population of people and they're trying to work together to cooperate, to achieve an objective, evolution has equipped us with a number of tools in order to do that. All of these tools tend to reduce the scale of interaction. So you're not interacting, you're not called upon to cooperate if you're in a group of a 1,000 or in 200 people. You're not called upon to cooperate with everybody. So one of those tools is tribalism. It fosters a sense of us versus them, define boundaries. So your challenge is cooperate with us, not with them, not with everybody. So instead of the whole population, you get down to these groups, okay? And we are very prone to this kind of groupiness. We're very prone to paying attention to group boundaries and to cooperating preferentially with our own groups. Some have argued, I think correctly, that in fact the way we've evolved to cooperate required us to make distinctions, that there's a coevolution of parochialism and xenophobia, there's a coevolution of those things with cooperativity. But another way that evolution has equipped us to also achieve a reduction of scale is to allow us to make friends. So now, of all this mass of people around us, Each of us has particular individuals that we feel particularly close with. And what's important here is to emphasize that in our species and in other mammals that live socially, unlike termites and ants and wasps and bees that are the eusocial insects that are genetic clones, we are not genetic clones. We cooperate with people who are not our biological kin and so how does evolution shape that? How is it possible for us to be altruistic to someone who's not related to us? So friendship is a tool and there are other tools as well. So the positive side of tribalism is that we evolve to manifest tribalism so as to facilitate cooperation. But of course, tribalism can then be overexpressed, like the peacock's feathers, you know, like an over-ornate that goes too far. And then you get mob action, you get pogroms, you get inquisitions, you get the Holocaust, you get all these horrors from too much of that. And actually, there's another way that evolution has equipped us to cooperate and work together as a group. And it's very paradoxical because people take it for granted that they can look out at a sea of faces and see that everyone looks different and identify each individual. But the fact that we have individual faces, that each face looks different, and the fact that we have the brain capacity to detect those differences is an evolutionary luxury other animals don't do this. We do it, elephants do it, certain whale species do it, certain primates do it. It's very rare in the animal kingdom to have individual identity. So this capacity for individual identity that we evolved that's evolutionarily expensive, is a crucial part of being able to identify who are your offspring. So you raise your children and not someone else's children. So you can know who your friends and enemies are. You remember, this person was nice to me, this person was not. You have to be right. able to have an identity right. and recognize the identity. But the irony is therefore that in order to live socially we must first be individuals and this capacity is another capacity that allows us to cooperate and live together. So we've been talking about all the different tools we have at armamentarium to live together, the capacity to be individuals does. And if you think about it, this capacity also lies at the core of expressions like Martin Luther King's, you know, I'd rather be judged by the content of my character than the color of my skin. He looks forward to such a world. So he's saying, I want each person to be judged as an individual and be an individual, not by virtue of which groups they belong to. So there are many different ways. Tribalism is one way to solve the problem of cooperation in large groups. And all of these things can be overexpressed and cause us trouble.
2: You've made me feel a little uh, insufficiently evolved since I'm mildly face-blind. And I think uh, <laughs> that important human adaptation yeah. is one that I don't have as strongly as, as sometimes I wish I had. Yes. I'm still a little puzzled though, by why... This should make me more optimistic. So is it just that people have focused on the negative side of evolution and they're focused on the negative side yes. of groupishness? And so therefore we just tend to speak about this in the wrong way? Or is it that there actually should come a great optimism from what you're saying? Because I still listening to all of those things you just said, think, okay, right. This puts But we kill in- each other. <laughs> Right. And, and we don't always kill each other, right? Yes, but but we don't. It's, it's just a different way of saying, look, we are able to tell individuals. And that's obviously an evolutionary adaptation. Yes. It is a very significant thing. It allows us to have friendship, which yes. is a beautiful thing. Yes. And it also allows us to have enemies. Yes. It also allows us to say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, because you did something bad to me. I'm going to go take my revenge. Mm-hmm. So, why is it that this should make us more optimistic when we think about politics, when we think about The future Is it just we should change how we talk about evolution and recognize that evolution has been a mixed bag? Or is it that an actual optimism should stem from that about projecting where human societies are going to go in the future uh, relative to our baseline?
1: Well, I would say it's both. First of all, the narrower, easier question is, you know, should we think differently about evolution? And my answer to that is yes. I think, you know, there's been a focus on all the dark side of our evolution and the bright side has been denied the attention it deserves. And so the book tries to act as a corrective to that. Say, look, we didn't just evolve to be inveterately evil. We, you know, have all these good qualities, which are interesting. You know, even the topic of love, for example, other animals, many animals, have sex and mate reproductively. We don't just have sex with our partners. We love our partners. We form a sentimental attachment. This also is rare. Actually, many birds do this. They form a long term, sort of, they're socially monogamous. But even among the mammals, this is rare. So, this is a good thing about our evolution. It's, it's a feature that's universally seen as good in our societies, even among arranged marriages. Love after an arranged marriage is seen as a very much desired thing. Mm. People are supposed to love their partner And it's
2: actually an amazing testament to the human instinct and capacity to yes. love yes. that you matched up with somebody who yes. you may not have ever have met, yes. may have met a couple of times, yes.
1: And relatively quickly, when things go well, you develop a love loop. Yes, that's right. And in fact, scientific studies of arranged marriages versus love matches show no difference after a number of years in the passionate love scale between arranged marriages and unarranged arranged marriages, and so forth. And, and we also find love among homosexual couples, so you don't have to be reproductive in order to be in love. So there's a very deep, fundamental, beautiful thing about human beings that we do this. So the easy part of the answer to your question about like, what is the lesson here, is that yes, we should see evolution as a force for good in humanity, and human nature. But the more difficult part, I think, if I've understood your question, has to do with, well, what impact might that recognition have upon our confronting problems at ALS? I would answer that question in two parts. First, I would say, I would strongly agree with people like Steven Pinker and others who have been arguing that human history has generally tended to improve our situation, the agricultural revolution, despite the problems of the agricultural, new kinds of diseases, new inequality, many, many problems with the agricultural revolution, nevertheless many benefits. The industrial revolution and the enlightenment, the sort of scientific advances and the philosophical shifts that took place during the enlightenment, I think no doubt have heralded this extraordinary Improvement in the well being of our species. We live longer, safer, are wealthier. All of these things are manifestly true as far as I'm concerned. So there are all these historical forces which are tending to the good. And whenever people look around right now and are rightly concerned with the rise of populism, the rise of tribalism, the kind of increasing sort of tensions between countries that we see in the last few years, even, let's not forget that the, we had two world wars. My father was in uh, Greece, was in Athens when the Germans. Occupied the city. I mean, you can talk to a living person who was there or there are still Holocaust survivors that are alive. So people can testify to real horrors. So it's not as bad as people think. So the historical forces are tending to the good, but these historical forces, actually, even they are trivial compared to these evolutionary forces, which are huge, which are very ancient, very powerful, very deep, and which shape us and equip us with all of these tools that, in my view, tend to the good. So if we buy that, if we agree
2: that there are all of these evolutionary instincts which can lead us to horrors, there are, as you're saying, ways in which culture and politics can go against those instincts, can destroy friendship and obviously incite war and genocide and all of those things. But if we buy
1: your point that that's not baked into human beings. Well, those whores are baked in, but there are also other good forces baked in, right? right.
2: So what does your evolutionary perspective on this?
1: It's like having a hamburger that's delicious, but then they add mushrooms to it, you know, and it's like... What's wrong with mushrooms? I hate mushrooms. Oh, well, yeah, I'm sorry for God. your loss. Yeah, this, exactly. is not, this is not a great metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it would be great if they didn't also have the mushrooms, <laughs> yes. Mushrooms and genocide.
2: Um, but what does that perspective allow us to understand about how to keep those negative aspects of human nature in check. Once we think about it in this evolutionary perspective and understand that in many ways evolution has set us up for good, how does that change when I say want to make a cultural intervention or political intervention in a current society? How does that make it easier for us to encourage the positive rather than negative sides of our nature?
1: So I think that one of the key recognitions is that efforts to engineer society in opposition to human nature will end in failure. So whether it's Paul Pot or whether it is social systems that try to suppress the innate tendency to love, you cannot swim against this tide, is one of the arguments. So these historical forces, while powerful and important. And while they can be temporarily successful, so for example, there was, I think, in a sample of 400 societies that had been looked at, there were only seven societies which allegedly had no friendships in them, in which you were encouraged to not have particularistic connections to other people. Five of those were strongly collectivist in nature. These are small-scale societies, so you're encouraged to like have fealty to the whole group but a very powerful cultural overlay has to be applied to suppress Mm -hmm. this innate tendency. So one of the lessons is, is that efforts at social engineering are bound to fail and I talk about and I review the history of utopian movements.
2: Well, when you say social engineering here, you mean pretty strong forms of social engineering.
1: Yes, I do. And those can include large-scale things like totalitarian states, but they can also include small-scale things like utopian sects that, for mm. example, like the Shakers, which try to suppress love amongst romantic partners, for example. Or certain communes that try to suppress Friendships between. So Huxley's Brave New World might work for a couple of years, but it's going to collapse eventually. Yes, exactly. And if I might, I'll just read. I have this metaphor in the book, which, you know, we've been talking, you and I, about historical and evolutionary forces, which are both present and play enormous roles in human affairs. One of the metaphors I use in the book is that, you know, if you're standing on a, on a plane and you look at two hills and you see that one is 300 feet and one is 900 feet, you might think those hills are very different. You know, one is three times larger than the other. And that's what it's like when we look at cultures around the world. We think, oh, that culture is different than this other culture. But actually, if we step back, we can see that we were on a 10,000 foot plateau. Mm -hmm. And actually, these were two mountains. One was 10,300 feet and one was 10,900 feet. And this obsession with these small differences has blinded us to the bigger tectonic forces that are at play in shaping these mountains. So on this issue of how much can we reshape society, and I guess in answer to your question, I would say, to the extent we attempt to reshape society, we should always do it consonant with these other forces. Mm -hmm. There's another reason to step off the plateau and look at mountains rather than hills. A key danger of viewing historical forces as more salient than evolutionary ones in explaining human society is that our species story then becomes more fragile giving historical forces primacy may even tempt us to give up and feel that a good social order is unnatural. But the good things we see around us are part of what makes us human in the first place. We should be humble in the face of temptations to engineer society in opposition to our instinct. Fortunately, we do not need to exercise any such authority in order to have a good life. And then I close the book with The arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. So the point then is that all of this should guide how we go about constructing a free and open
2: society. So let me ask one question about a free and open society where I actually
1: think we need to do some social engineering for it to succeed. And so I'm gonna interrupt you because that would be like, and I agree with you, but the engineering we need to do is like saying, this baby needs to grow. We need to feed it nutritious food so it will have natural yeah, right. body. But let
2: me set out yeah. the case, okay. because I think that in one important aspect of contemporary societies, we are going against some of our evolutionary instincts. Yes, And if that's true, and it's also true that social engineering doesn't work, then we're in real trouble. So I want to hear from you where you disagree, whether A, perhaps you are in fact pessimistic about this particular thing, but that would be very, very important. That'd be a huge concession from where your argument is coming from whether you think that it doesn't involve any social engineering because our evolutionary instinct tends towards that, or how else you can talk me out of my pessimism. So so here's my pessimistic case. That human beings are wired for social cooperation and they're wired for friendship and they're wired for those forms of goodness. But when you think about the context in which that has historically been the case in prehistoric times, It was relatively small bands and groups. So it was people whom we had face-to-face contact, not all of whom were our friends, certainly not all of whom were our lovers, but people who we had some very real Mm -hmm. human connection to. And over time, human societies have tried to expand the boundaries Mm -hmm. of what work this biological instinct does more and more through culture, Mm -hmm. through saying, actually, we all have the same religion, and therefore, we should all look out for each other. Mm -hmm. Actually, we are a member of the same nation, so Mm -hmm. we should all look out for each other. Mm -hmm. But there was always some link back to that evolutionary instinct, Mm -hmm. there was always often some biological link or some other way in which you actually connected these individuals. Now in the United States, we live in probably, along with India and a few other places in the world today, the most ambitious attempt. To take that evolutionary instinct and expand it into the broadest scale, where we are supposed to have solidarity to 300 million other people, a lot of whom don't share our religion, Mm -hmm. don't share our ethnicity, in a very adversarial political system, Mm -hmm. which actually is built around two parties trying to build up opposition to each other. So isn't the only way that we can make that work for certain forms of social engineering that actually encourage a strong American identity that surpasses those kinds of ethnic and religious boundaries. And if social engineering is bound to fail, doesn't that mean that the American experiment is bound
1: to fail? Okay, so there's a very complicated set of ideas and questions. First, I would say that, as you'd obviously know, this is the classic Gemeinschaft-Gesellschaft kind of conflict, right?
2: I'll pretend not to know. Uh, Please please, please explain. (laughs) Well, I
1: mean, the Gemeinschaft is like, you know, the face-to-face community and the kind of sense of personal relationships, and Gesellschaft is the kind of bureaucratic, anomie, faceless interactions. And the reason people find modern living so unsatisfactory, as people argue and I agree, that it is a kind of a faux social interaction. These interactions with bureaucrats in official roles, these interactions with strangers, these interactions with people via their uh, role in society instead of via their humanity, their individuality. We read, our evolutionary heritage has equipped us to read those as dangerous even, or as unsatisfactory. So many of these utopian communities we alluded to earlier react against this and say, look, modern society, incidentally, these utopian sects have been around since Roman times. Like even in Roman times, people were like, Roman society is screwed up. You know, we need to go and start society anew. We want a real authentic social interactions. This has been going on for thousands of years is because people read the scale of modern society, which has been made possible by the agricultural revolution and more lately, the industrial revolution, read them as alien to our true nature, okay? Mm. So on the one hand, this effort to try to tell people, let's say, as you said, in India, which has the biggest democracy in the world, a billion people, with all these other relevant distinctions within it, that, you know, we're all Indian or we're all American. The American project is swimming against this kind of intrinsic desire for real, authentic interactions.
2: But on the other hand... Not not, not just against the desire for authentic interaction. That's certainly one part of it. But a lot of people would say that it's also swimming against the instinct of groupishness, right? So the question is, at what scale is groupishness baked into human nature. Clearly, okay, ah. some instinct for social cooperation is baked in, but people like Jonathan Haidt would argue that it's baked in at the level of groups that are perhaps a couple of hundred strong, and that yes. you can extend that to yes. different mechanisms. You can yes. extend that by yes. saying, yes. we are a nation that is based on ethnic similarity, and yes. so all of these people are an extended kind of family. Yes, now, that's a fiction, yes. That's a fiction that is based more closely yes. in the ethnic ties that you have in prehistoric yes. times than the kind of nation we're trying to build in the United States, which yes. is saying, no, you don't have any ethnic relationship. You don't have any set of very strong beliefs you share. You don't Well, even you believe or, in the
1: American project. You believe
2: That's in the American saying. project, but that is a less strong motivator in certain ways than we all believe that if you say this thing, you're going to go to hell. And so the idea is that what we're doing is to stretch our instinct of groupishness yes. into- the biggest, yes. broadest, most diverse possible yes. society. And yes. Isn't that a way of swimming against our evolutionary instincts? And if that's what we're doing, then if social engineering can't succeed,
1: shouldn't you be pessimistic about the success okay. of this? God, it's hard. That's okay, right. So this is a serious podcast. I Yeah, yeah. So I would say yes and no to that. So first of all, I would say that one of the ways I argue to combat the tribalism that's ascendant in many parts of the world today, including the United States, is precisely to exploit our capacity for boundary drawing, which is incidentally arbitrary. It's not necessarily by skin color. So there's famous experiments in social psychology where little children are randomly assigned different t-shirts and you get three-year-olds, some half are assigned yellow t-shirts, half are assigned red t-shirts. They know, they can tell that it's at random, and you can test this, and then suddenly the yellow T-shirt wears, think the red T-shirt wears, are horrible children who deserve to be punished and shouldn't be given toys, and vice versa. So you just tickle a human being and you can elicit this type of us versus them tribalism. Right, right. It's awful. It's one of the most depressing parts of our nature that we have this quality. But here we see that it can be elicited with T-shirt color. It doesn't need to be along religious lines or skin color or any other kind of the things you were alluding to. It can be along any kind of arbitrary line. Like if you look at the Tutsis and the Hutu, you know, they're very similar, but they slaughtered each other. The point though is that because it is so baked into our nature and is so manipulable, it can also be exploited to expand that same tool which equips us for tribalism and which equips us to draw the boundaries between us and them means that the boundary itself is not inherent. It's not like you're born with a hatred of people of the other religion you're born to pay attention to distinctions. Mm -hmm. So if we can broaden to the extent that we swim with that and say, okay, we're all Americans. And I actually think, there's another set of issues here, but I actually think that the fact that America won the Cold War allowed tribalism to flourish in our society because prior to that, we had a common enemy, Hmm. right? So we're all Americans fighting against that guy. And so therefore our distinctions internally aren't so important. We win the Cold War, all of a sudden we don't have a common enemy. We start paying attention to these differences which We may not have, they were always present in our society. I'm not like Pollyanna thinking everything was great, but they weren't as salient. I'm a little bit skeptical of certain
2: forms of survey research and this one slightly sets off my BS detector, but there's an amazing study which shows that you give people one text which claims that NASA has definitively proven the existence of aliens, and I think it doesn't quite go so far. But perhaps it implies that they're about to attack us. And then it asks white Americans, "How do you feel about African Americans?" And uh-huh. it turns out they feel great about African yes. Americans. I didn't know that. And study. then you give them a different priming text that says that NASA has definitively proved that there's no aliens and nobody's going to come and invade us, and suddenly they have much less positive feelings. More racial, yes. so, so it it shows that the fact that who is a member of your group can be redefined according to context. And yes. having a common enemy is uh, something that can bind groups together yes. But you, you went further than that, right? You were sort of saying that it's arbitrary what becomes a salient group distinction yes. and what isn't and it can sort of be drawn at any scale I, on I'm, any set sort of criteria. And I guess- if,
1: I'm not, no, no, I didn't say that okay. it can be drawn at any scale. I'm, I don't know the answer to it, what, what scale it can be drawn at. Right. I agree with Jonathan in your point earlier that there may be, nat- there are, I know with Robin Dunbar's work, there are natural scales and you could have groups of five and 30. And in fact, we see the same scale in elephants, incidentally, which independently evolved One of the things that I like to show is is that other social mammals have independently evolved by convergent evolution, similar capacities for friendship and pair bonding and so forth. And if we can share the capacity for friendship with these animals, with elephants, We can share it with each other. So ironically, the closer we are to animals, the closer we are to each other. But the elephants also have various levels of scale. So I'm not prepared yet to say that the scale is important, but I am prepared to say that it is part of our nature to draw these distinctions. And there is a sense in which you can design society in keeping with that nature, which allows a kind of appeal to a sort of nationalism even, which gets people to buy a common project. Like we're all Yugoslavs. So I broadly agree with that. As I've
2: often said in this podcast, I think that we need a form of inclusive patriotism, inclusive nationalism, and that's much more realistic than utopian hopes of overcoming forms of particularistic attachment altogether. The ideal of a cosmopolitan who cares about everybody in any part of the world equally is moving, and I find it beautiful. I don't think it's a realistic prescription for how human societies work, and it's not a realistic prescription for how I feel about the world. Having said that, I do wonder whether it is easier, irrespective of a question of scale, To sustain an in group feeling at the level you're trying to pitch it at, say at the level of a nation, if you have more substantive similarities, whether there isn't something simpler and sustaining to replace one thing with another. Rather than Canadian nationalism, because Poland is a lot more homogeneous. And so, therefore, whether it doesn't entail some forms of quasi social engineering to keep saying, no, in our society, it's not about your skin color, it's not about religion, it's not about interests you may have in common. It is about
1: all of us having a common attachment to this nation. I would say that the more overlapping qualities that groups of people have, that those people happen to care about already, the easier the task is of cultivating nationalism. So, you know, Japan is another country that's ethno-linguistically very relatively much more homogeneous than Canada or the United States. So there are countries like that whose borders are either natural or after the hundred years war in Europe were drawn in ways that, you know, sorted groups into relatively homogeneous things after all the bloodbaths. And I am sure there are easier to foster solid nationalism in a situation where everyone is linguistically and religiously very similar. But I don't think it's necessary, is what I'm saying. But I do think it would be very difficult to suppress this groupishness in people. I think that efforts to suppress groupishness are unlikely to succeed, whereas efforts to redirect groupishness are more likely to succeed. And there you need sort of some benevolence in the society, you know, some desire to cultivate. Incidentally, also part of this is there's a big difference between thinking our group is better than that group and hating the other group, Hmm. right? There's no necessary- You think your wife is better than a lot of other human beings and a lot of other women in the world. That doesn't mean you have to hate them. That's right, exactly. And so what's a little odd to me and and is still sort of perplexing is where does the hatred come from? In other words, you could have indifference to another group Hmm. or even mild admiration. You know, this is us, that's them. They are actually pretty good about X, Y, and Z, but that's still them. Or this is us and that's them and we don't care about them. Why we actually need to revile them or set out to kill them is odd. And I don't think a necessary part, There's, this is still contended actually in evolutionary biology. Do you need to have affirmative a warlikeness without in order to have peacefulness within? Or can you just have indifference? And um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't... It may be independent, right? It may just be that it so happens, historically well, speaking, that that the groups well,
2: being warlike people, gave you evolutionary advantages, not in order to, to sustain in group sympathy but just because groups that a sustained in group sympathy and b independently also then went out and were very aggressive towards everybody who wasn't a member of a group just did better
1: right well there's a set of arguments by evolutionary biologists who've modeled these things mathematically that shows that cooperation is very difficult to evolve cooperation between non-kin right and it's also very difficult to evolve hatred of other groups because it's actually costly to hate other groups. First of all, you have to hate them. It takes mental energy. Second, it's risky. Like if you set out to like fight other people, it's better to avoid conflict. Yeah, yeah. But you can have co-evolution of parochialism and cooperativity. That is to say our cooperative instincts can have emerged in a setting in which we have group markers. We mark people. So there's a set of models and ideas about how those two things co-evolved and why they're really interconnected, parochialism and cooperation, alas. But still, Even if we evolve to have this way, I don't think it's destiny. You know, we are cultural and cognitive, self-aware species. But we have to be mindful of this part of our human nature for trying to engineer things. And leaders have always, since time immemorial, cultivated hatred of other groups to amass their own power. You know, it's gays that need to be put to death. Or it's Mexican immigrants that are awful, or it's the Jews that must be slaughtered. I mean, it's just endless, endless examples at every time and place of this type of stupidity, which of course is very dangerous. But again, it's part of our nature, this this distinction. But we're focusing on all the aspects, you know, we talked about we're spending all this time, I guess it's your interest on tribalism. Tribalism is only part of all the things that, you know, we do.
2: So I'll let you have the inspiring non-tribalism conversation at the end of the podcast. But but I I do want to continue on, because obviously, I mean, this podcast is concerned with the rise of authoritarian populism. And the question of why we are so tribal and how to deal with this tribalism in a productive way, I think is absolutely key to thinking about how to deal with populism. And so coming at it from this evolutionary perspective, I think is an interesting way of mixing up some of the ideas
1: that we've gone through rehearsals. Well, institutions path. that foster cross-group ties right. are very effective. So when you get people to have friends that are of the other group, so they have personal relationships, so this exploits our tendency to befriend each other. Those types of things that create cross-cutting identities are very effective at reducing populism. So on the Poland example, you know maybe it would be possible to. I don't know what the political divisions in Poland are, you obviously know this much better than I do, but institutions that tend to foster these types of connections, also institutions, frankly, that are committed to other liberal principles like open expression. This is a bit of a digression, but I'll come back. The fact that we teach each other is also a rare thing in the animal kingdom. So other animals learn, like a little fish in the sea learns that if it swims to the light, it'll find food there. That's individual learning. Other animals also learn socially, by imitation, like you know, you put your hand in the fire and you learn that it's hot, or I watch you put your hand in the fire and I get almost as much knowledge. Right, Boy, right. that fire is bad for him, and I pay none of the price. That's very efficient social learning. But we do even more than that. We affirmatively teach each other things. We set out to teach, and hmm. and that teaching function, which is very rare in the animal kingdom, is also the root of our capacity for culture, and therefore our ability to transmit information across time and space which is ultimately the source of our wealth. The Mm. accumulation of Mm. cultural knowledge is what makes our species so special. So this capacity to teach is essential. So institutions that abet or encourage teaching by fostering open and free communication swim with our nature are consistent with the good parts of our nature and support civil society. So we were talking about like, you know, what are some of the institutions? So institutions that foster friendship between groups, institutions that foster teaching and learning, right? Which again is consistent with our tendencies. These things tend to reduce the kind of hatred and violence and push against because I can't learn from... Do I, do from I like- hear an implication in what you're saying Which may or may
2: not have to do with some of the controversies you've been enrolled in in your recent life, that one of the problems of contemporary institutions is that they don't always do that, that they actually try to foster bonding rather than cross-cutting ties. I I was visiting a college for a talk a few days ago, and I was speaking to one of my student hosts, who's a first-generation Mexican-American woman. and She was telling me that, you know, she was a little concerned about the fact that at her college, incoming students had a separate orientation and a separate retreat, in fact, of a couple yes. of weeks, I think, for incoming first-generation people of color. Yes. And she appreciated that. She appreciated the fellowship that this group gave her. But she also then noticed that all of those students ended up hanging out together and not really having much yes. content with the other students, which is a natural yes. uh, result. If yes. you the first two weeks in an institution yes. is spent with a yes. close group of people and you go and have fun together yes. and go on a trip together, or I don't know exactly what retreat yes. involves, it's natural that that's where the friendships are going to fall. Yes. But, but it may be that an institutional adaptation, which is trying to address a very serious problem yes. of people who are first generation, are people of color, not feeling as well integrated in institutions, not as welcome institutions. Um, but the thing that's supposed to make them feel integrated and welcome actually ends up yes. creating that separatism. That was her feeling. I mean, Is that the kind of way in which you think some institutions are going? Yes.
1: I think that's a good example of responding to human nature in a way that ultimately is counterproductive. That if we're really trying to foster a kind of communal spirit, fostering, highlighting group divisions is the wrong way to do it. It swims against the stated intention. And we know from experience that all kinds of ways in which things like you're discussing ultimately wind up harming not only the institution, but the individuals and the groups themselves. So yes, I believe in our common humanity. I believe that All of us are human beings with our own distinctive paths through life, with our own life experiences. I recognize that people face different challenges. People are born with all sorts of handicaps, physical and social and so forth. But I think we can talk to each other. And I know that we can learn from each other. And in fact, I also know that our capacity to learn from each other is baked into who we are as human beings. And that actually, in order to build healthy societies, we have to swim with this innate tendency that we have. So let's stay with university for a moment, not
2: because it's particularly important, but because it is one social science might call a most likely case. If we are not able to foster yes, this kind of sense of yes. togetherness at privileged college campuses in the United States, yes. where everybody who comes yes. in is smart, and, to and yes. how on earth are we going to make yes. it work somewhere else?
1: Yes. So and how- that's why I'm so depressed by the direction of American universities right now in this regard. You know, you just had a situation this week at Harvard where the president was trying to speak about some unrelated matter at the Kennedy School about education or something. And there were groups of students who were concerned about divestment from fossil fuels and the prison industry. I should say, just as a footnote, that I'm conflicted about the fossil fuels topic I don't know where the truth lies there. I, I am very concerned about climate change. I'm, I'm convinced that humans are responsible for it. I absolutely would favor interventions like a carbon tax and so forth. But on the prison industry, I really revile the private ownership of prisons. I think incarceration is a function of the state. I do not think we should have people making a profit from incarcerating our citizens. That's my political position. Right. So I sort of... Neutral, yes, to, sympathetic to, yeah, to, to, neutral to in to, to agreeing with the students' positions. But their actions were ridiculous. They were narcissistic. The president was there to speak about another topic, and they exercised a kind of heckler's veto. They didn't win any friends, I'm sure, in the audience, who was there for a different topic, and they don't recognize the right of their peers to also hear what's saying. So if we can't get this right, if we are unable to foster a community of reasoned debate and open communication, if we yield to the heckler's veto... So a minority of people can control what everyone else hears. At American universities, you are right. I'm despairing of our capacity to do it in our broader society.
2: So now I'm suddenly feeling more optimistic than you are. I, I agree with you on a lot of those <laughs> things. I agree certainly on the importance of not giving people hackless vetoes, which is a very corrosive dynamic which is set into place. But why is it that the social engineering that these universities try to do with the best of intentions... yes ends up going so wrong at well, that because level. You get, Why a, bur- is it you get that a rise of the that-
1: bureaucracy whose needs are served by highlighting distinctions and whose needs are not, in fact, served by binding together the whole group.
2: So that's surely true at the national level. I mean, obviously, not just would-be authoritarians have a big incentive to say there's a very dangerous group in our society and You need a strong man like me in order to deal with them. And if you don't, then our nation is going to be betrayed. And even if you don't have an aspiring dictator of that sort, you have a partisan political system, which obviously thrives at the moment more strongly on negative partisanship and positive partisanship. So trying to portray the other side as really dangerous, Mm -hmm. there's an incredible incentive to do that. And in that sense, Donald Trump is a deeply rational agent. He's understood mm-hmm. how much gain there is to be had in the American political system in making people hate your opponent and certain demographic groups. So if we can't get this I just right— I am want no
1: part of that. I'm not interested in hating anybody. I, I think it's—
2: Well, likewise. But if we can't get that right at a place like Harvard or at a place like Yale— What makes you optimistic that we can
1: get it right at the national level? Well, I did not say that I was optimistic about our political system. I said I'm optimistic about our species. Okay, so again, this is a question of scale. I am a little pessimistic right now about the direction we're going. I think we have another half a generation of nonsense at American universities before we correct, so 15 years. I think we're closer to the end, than I think we're beyond the middle. Jonathan Haidt does not think that. He thinks we're still at the early phases of this type of problems at our universities. But I am optimistic that eventually we'll get there. But right now, yes, I share some of your... And we know know from the scientific evidence that where political polarization and income inequality are at century-low peaks, I would be flying against the evidence if I told you that all is well in this regard. It's not well.
2: I think there's two ways of thinking about the problems at universities, right? One is through these manifestations, which I think we have a broadly similar view on. But the other is the underlying reality. Right? I mean, one of the things that always depressed me when I was at Harvard was going into the dining hall, for example, and seeing that there is actually a lot of real tribalism yes. going on in that context. But actually, certain demographies of students yes, tend to sit together, and that's true that's whether famous, it is... Yeah, that's a famous example, but... The... You know, I think that we can focus on some of the reactions to the underlying problems which we both disagree with, but why is it that in that favored context where everybody's excited to come to this community, where everybody has the four best years of their lives together, supposedly, bright futures ahead of them, these forms of mutual distrust, and at the very minimum, strong in-group bonding with less strong cross-group social capital, and
1: at the more extreme forms, real mutual distrust ends up happening. Well, first of all, on the ethnoracial homophily issue, it's very important to recognize that because people's skin color is superficially visible, we may notice more of that type of homophily than, for instance, all the swimmers and the tennis players are hanging out. Well,
2: all of the prep school boys. Oh, oh, prep yeah, school yeah, of course. No. Or, and this or is other kinds of what kinds, about, yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. So I think it's very important not to highlight only one kind of division. And in fact, if you go and you study this, I'm not totally on top of that uh, literature, but my understanding is is that if you quantify the degree to which people for example fraternities might be stronger bonding cliques than let's say ethnicity or religion now there's no doubt that you know the mormon kids will hang out with the mormon kids and the the muslims will hang out with the muslims and so forth and so on the evangelical christians will hang out with the evangelical christians people aggregate according to whatever traits they want but it's not the case that it's just divisions based on race because that's what people tend to see when they go into the dining hall But I agree with you that regardless of the particular divisions, it is, in fact, not only depressing that this is the case at these elite institutions, but it's actually the opposite of what they set forth as their objective, which is that we're going to create a kind of melting pot where we're going to bring kids from all over the United States, from all walks of life, and they're going to learn from each other. But then we abandon them. We don't actually equip them or build institutions that allow them to talk to each other. Instead, we privilege those divisions we highlight them even, instead of saying, you know, you're all Yale students now. You all equally deserve to be at this institution. You all have the same claim to this institution, the same right to this institution, but this institution is devoted to free and open expression. This institution is devoted to our common humanity. This institution, even if it didn't honor those commitments in the past, it is built on principles you should endorse and support, which is that we're all here to learn to talk to each other, to learn from each other, and so forth, enlightenment values, basic enlightenment values. So instead of telling the students this, that you all deserve to be here, here's how you're gonna to talk to each other, and you will disagree, you'll have difference of opinion about everything, religion, politics, abortion rights, fossil fuels, you know, whatever it is. But here are the tools you're gonna to use, you're gonna use reason, You're going to use civil debate. You're going to use evidence. You're going to use open communication. These are the tools you have to sort it out. We don't do that. Instead, we kind of abandon. The faculty abandons this duty, in my view, and uh, sort of takes the easy path of saying, well, the kids, you know, they feel isolated, so we're going to create these little groups for them to be a part of. Now, as we've been discussing, that's quite natural too, this groupiness. It's just not what I think that universities should be doing. And there are ways to do it that are in keeping with our nature, but that actually are better.
2: There are different levels at which groupishness might manifest itself. And part of the complexity of contemporary human societies is that we tend to see it play out at different levels at the same time. So somebody might be proud to be from Siena and really dislike Florence. Same time, they might be proud to be Tuscan and really dislike Lazio. And they may be proud to be Italian and really dislike France. But they also may feel European as opposed to a member of some other part of the world. Now, what I find interesting in a lot of this debate is that people tend to privilege one form of groupishness over other forms of groupishness. Now, there may be justifications for that in particular context, but a lot of the people who hate nations and think the idea of nationalism is inherently toxic really want to celebrate subnational identity groups, mm-hmm. right? And they say, obviously, we want a society... Which or global. You know, ident- right, yeah. Or global. But, you know, they deeply identify with being... Environmentalists or something. Yeah, or even even among ethnic and religious lines, that that there's something wonderful about people deeply identifying with being Latino or Muslim or African American. There's something very worrying with people identifying too strongly with being American. Now, inversely, I think you and perhaps I have a tendency to say the right adaptation to groupishness is some important sense of national identity, which can allow us to have things in common in the United States across those lines, across racial and religious and so on lines, But what's the appropriate role of sub-national groupishness in that society? How do you think we can ensure that we're not going against human nature?
1: I don't know the answer to that question. I don't have strong political prescriptions for what ails us at that level. I can tell you that human social identity has evolutionarily been shaped to be hierarchical. So, you know, we're members of a family and then we're members of a clan and then we're members of a tribe and the capacity to feel affiliations with those concentric levels is baked into us. So it's not the case that you make a binary distinction between us versus them. There are different gradations of us that we are capable and have always, as far as I can tell, manifested. And that incidentally, we share with elephants, which again, is an interesting feature so i can tell you that it doesn't surprise me that there might be capacities for you know subnational identity as you describe it but i can't tell you you know how to exploit that to solve what ails us right now i would be suspicious of it i don't think the path of fostering subnational identities is going to address the problem of nationalism i think if we're going to have functioning nation states we need to have people have some sense of belonging to the whole nation state and I think this is one of the reasons America is so admirable, is that anyone can be an American. You just have to accept our Bill of Rights and the separation of powers and some basic political principles, and you can be an American. And we've always been that way. And we've not been defined along the ethnic or racial or religious or other lines, linguistic even. So I think that's to our credit. And you know, maybe that's an experiment. Maybe the American experiment over centuries will fail. You know, Maybe we'll look back hundreds of years from now and think this was a brief blip of non-ethnically guided democracy in an otherwise millennia-long sweep of history of authoritarian and monarchical power along defined groups? I hope not.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one interesting thing is that we tend to think that democracy helps us solve the problem of tribalism, and in certain ways it may, but at least in one important respect, it makes it harder which is that if you are living in an empire under an all-powerful and more or less benevolent monarch, not easy to find, but... There have been a few cases. There have been a few cases. The relative strength and size of different groups matters a little bit less to you because you will have no power and you just have to rely on the benevolence of a monarch one way or the other. So the fact that another group is growing, for example, doesn't directly impact uh, your situation in a democracy where everything is based on voting. Uh, that is different. Inherently, if another group grows in size, it dilutes the voting power of your group. So democracy may, in certain ways, be the right zero-sum but, politics, but it heightens a, zero, a form of zero-sum politics. I mean, the other thing that I'm wondering about is that uh, to those of us, and I think that probably in- includes a good number of the listeners of this podcast who are somewhat skeptical of tribal identities, I think that a challenge we have to pose to ourselves of whether we are going against evolutionary instinct on some of those things as well. And I think the question should be less, how strongly should you identify with your tribe? Just as the right question to ask is not, how strongly should you be an American? The question is, what is a productive way of interpreting that identity to your tribe? And what is a destructive Mm one? So the question is not so much about whether people 50 or 100 years from now are strongly going to identify, certainly by the religion, but even by the ethnicity. I think that can be a positive vision of America where 50 or 100 years from now, a lot of people say, it's important to me that I'm black. It's important to me that I'm Latino. It's important to me that I'm Jewish or or perhaps- Or German or Greek. or, Or perhaps German or Greek. The question is, how do we ensure that that plays a positive role in society, which still leaves lots and lots of scope for friendships and yes. perhaps intermarriage and relationships with well, people who outside of it, intermarriage is going way
1: up, as you know. I mean, that is one that's of the great sign. positive signs. Yes. Um,
2: but that I think is the question, right? Like, it's not should we be American or not; it's how can we be American in a way that allows all people living in the United States to have a reasonable space in the society yes. that allows the United States to cooperate with other nations around the world. Yes. in the same way, perhaps yes. the right question in tribalism is not. Should we embrace it 100% and think that, especially if it's tribalism of historically discriminated against group, it must be positive? Or on the other side, saying we need to overcome those kinds of identities completely, it's what form should these take so that they are compatible with nationalism, so that they're compatible with real solidarity of people who are outside of that tribe? And that's a more complicated question. Now... Is your time to that, tell us well, all I'll of do, the other positive no, things about I, evolution I, I, we I, haven't
1: covered? I, I, no, what I'll do instead is I'll, I'll close, I guess, with a, a set of ideas that I think are important. And that is, if you think about, you know, medieval theologians had to struggle with uh, something known as theodicy, which is the vindication of a belief in a benevolent God despite the manifest failures. You know, the, there's evil and suffering in the world. So how do we square that with our belief in God? And so this branch of theology concerns itself with the vindication of a belief in God despite this manifest suffering and evil. So I see a blueprint as a work of sociodicy. How do we vindicate a confidence in society despite the manifest problems, despite the tribalism and the hatred and the selfishness and the violence that we see in human societies? How can we nevertheless maintain our faith, our confidence in the goodness of society? And I attempt to provide an account for that. And in fact, I would even say, there's a branch of Japanese uh, aesthetics and philosophy called wabi sabi. So, you know, Western aesthetic traditions tend to privilege symmetry and perfection, but some Japanese traditions privilege imperfection. So, a pot that's cracked or slightly misshapen, made by a master, or a bonsai tree that's slightly crooked, or the way we humans might look at a cobblestone street and think of it as beautiful. Right, They're little irregularities Mm. that we think are very beautiful. This is known as wabi-sabi. And I think that it's a kind of an appreciation for the flawed beauty, for flawed beauty. And that's how I see societies. It's a flawed beauty, Mm. but it's beautiful. We live together in a beautiful way that natural selection has shaped. So despite our flaws, or maybe even because our flaws, or maybe even in response to our flaws, we have these wonderful qualities that I choose to focus on.
2: Well, I've learned a new term, sociodicy, and a lot more in this conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. Put a prominent, all caps, ad for The Good Fight in your holiday away message. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to the at newamerica.org.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.